it's so easy to extrapolate from this moment as if we know what's going to happen in a week or a month or three months or six months or a year. And this is one of those situations, the Buddha was always talking about it, you know, of the importance of uncertainty, uh, that, that really we don't know uh, what the next moment is going to bring. I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly, a podcast about pacing yourself, where I explore how you can find more calm, comfort, and clarity through the simple act of slowing down. Before I dive into today's show, I'd like to tell you about a new project I'm working on called Hi-Fi. Hi-Fi like high fidelity, but also for my purposes, heart fidelity. Hi-Fi is a 12-week community-driven course that invites you to reconnect with your body, open your heart, and bring your intuition online. Personally, I believe this crisis is an opportunity to look inward. And exploring that opportunity is actually what much of this particular podcast episode that we're going to get into here in a minute is about. But I don't think we need to go on that inward voyage alone. We could all use some extra inspiration and support right now. And my goal with Hi-Fi is to bring together a vibrant community of open-hearted people who are dedicated to deepening their connection to themselves and their creative intuition. I actually had the idea for this course before all this COVID-19 madness started. And strangely, tools for being more embodied and connecting to the wisdom of the heart seem even more necessary now than ever. So I decided to kick the development of Hi-Fi into high gear and just create the course as I go so that we can all dive in together as soon as possible. Hopefully, creating a community for raising consciousness, supporting each other, and moving into deeper touch with our own inner knowing. I'm hoping to open registration for Hi-Fi in the next two to four weeks. So if joining a few hundred other folks to take a course that's all about reconnecting with your body, opening your heart, and turning up the volume on your intuition sounds appealing to you, visit hifi-course.com to sign up for more information. That's H-I-F-I-course.com. Dot com for more information on my latest project. Okay, now onward to today's episode. My guest is Mark Epstein, a fellow upstate New Yorker and the author of the beautiful book, Advice Not Given, A Guide to Getting Over Yourself, in which he explores the intersection of Western psychotherapy and Buddhism, and what each tradition has to offer us with regard to loosening the ego's grip. For myself in this moment of uncertainty, talking with people who can really hold space for me, as therapists and other healers can, and practicing meditation have probably been the two most important activities for helping me keep it together and continue functioning. So I was particularly curious to talk to Mark about how some of the ideas from his book might apply to this unusually challenging moment. He didn't disappoint. In this conversation, we talk about how the pandemic is interrupting all the usual stories we tell ourselves, why it's not unlike being on an unplanned meditation retreat, and how all this reclusive downtime beckons us, or maybe even forces us, to take a closer look at who we think we're supposed to be. Let's dive in. 
Hi, Mark. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Jocelyn. So I was attracted to your book the moment that I saw it because I really loved the title, Advice Not Given, A Guide to Getting Over Yourself. Mm -hmm. Could you start by maybe giving a quick gloss of what the book is about and talking about the significance of the title? Well, I wrote the book a couple of years ago um, after uh, a couple of important things had happened. Uh, The first being that my father had passed away um, from a a, a malignant brain tumor. And uh, I had never really been able to talk with my father about uh, Buddhism or about any of the, you know, more spiritual leanings uh, uh, that I had. He was a a physician, a scientist, and, uh, you know, very tolerant of my uh, of my interests, but never really curious about them. But mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, the brain tumor that he had was on the non-dominant side of his brain, so uh, his thinking was intact. But uh, at a certain point, uh, he realized that he had this tumor and knew that he was going to die. Um, and I, at a certain point, I realized that uh, maybe I should try to have a conversation with him about what the uh, Buddhists say about uh, death. Um, so even though the book is, uh, entitled advice, not given, I, I took the chance of calling my father and asking him if he wanted to know, uh, any of what the, um, uh, the ancient literature suggested might happen at death. And he was very, very, uh, willing. Um, so I tried without using, uh, uh, cultish or even Buddhist language, I tried to explain what uh, what I uh, have picked up. Uh, and I said something like, you know, that feeling that's deep inside you, where you are, who you've always been, uh, like when you were 20 or 40 or 60 or 80, it doesn't feel that different inside of you. But if you try to define what that feeling is, it's difficult because the feeling is sort of invisible. Uh, I said that what the Buddhists say is that if you can relax your mind into that kind of invisible space of who you've always been, that you can ride that out uh, as the body body, uh, falls away. Um, And uh, he said, um, uh, thank you, darling, I'll try. So I had that in my head when I I was on a silent retreat um, of a Vipassana retreat at a place in Massachusetts called the Forest Refuge. Uh, I think it was a couple of years after my father had died. Um, And I was sitting, you know, uh, um, doing my best to meditate. And I started to think about my patience and my practice and uh, the way that, uh, even though Buddhism has been so important to me that I've, uh, always tried not to lay it on my patients cause that's not necessarily, uh, what they're coming for. Uh, but I, I began to think that, oh, maybe I was actually depriving my patients who I cared about so much. Maybe I was depriving them of what had actually been so important and so helpful to me, um, 
So I, uh, I realized that I uh, could take some more chances as I had with my father and uh, try to find ways of uh, bringing the Dharma, uh, bringing what I had, under, what, what, uh, I had uh, experienced uh, through my meditations, that maybe there were ways of bringing that more directly into the uh, psychotherapy practice. So that those thoughts were the genesis of the first part of the title, the advice not given. Uh, the the uh, the idea being that for you know thirty years or so, I had been careful not to uh, give a lot of Buddhist advice, but that there was plenty of advice that I hadn't given that might be relevant. Uh, and the second part of the title, a guide to getting over yourself, came later. Actually, I'm not sure I knew what the subtitle was going to be. But I had a, a brief moment of inspiration when I was thinking about uh, um, uh, the Lonely Planet or uh, something like that, that, uh, um, that the, the Buddha's Eightfold Path, which is how I structured the book, um, what was actually a guide for getting over yourself and that there was more to the Buddhist teachings than just meditation, that it was actually a, a whole... Um, uh, uh, it, both ethical and uh, behavioral, as well as contemplative guide to um, dealing with the ego, which is the the big obstacle that we all carry. So that's a a long winded answer to your first question, but that's uh, that's the basic uh, background of the book. And so your background really comes out of both being a practicing therapist, as well as being a practicing meditator. And I feel like part of where psychotherapy and meditation really overlap seems to be in becoming aware of the stories that we tell ourselves and, and hopefully helping us release them. You're actively working with patients right now in the midst of this crisis. What's the most common story that you're seeing people tell themselves about this crazy situation that we're all dealing with i don't i don't uh, experience people telling themselves um uh any particular story about the situation i think that this uh coronavirus moment is um it's serving as a real um uh stop sign almost uh for people in their lives so I think that, that everyone is just dealing with that. Um, I was supposed to go on retreat. I was supposed to go back to the forest refuge uh, during the first week of the quarantine. I'd been planning it for, you know, I try to go every year for at least a week. So I'd been planning this for a long time. And uh, as the uh, feeling of, uh, of the impending doom was mounting, I realized that I wasn't going to be able to go. And so I canceled. And then right as I was canceling, I got a, a note from the uh, retreat center that they were closing. Um, so it was never going to happen. But, um, uh, you know, I thought I was going to be on retreat during that week, but it turns out that the whole world is on retreat instead. Um, and I think that's... Uh, uh, I think that's interrupted the stories that people are telling themselves. And, um, you know, just like the traffic is interrupted and business is interrupted and uh, 
um, you know, going out of the house is interrupted. I think a lot of uh, a lot of the usual stories are interrupted, and people are just dealing with uh, much more being in the moment, as one has to do when when on retreat. Um, and then, of course, there's a lot of fear. Um, so I think uh, 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 it's so easy to extrapolate. Uh, from this moment as if we know what's going to happen in uh, a week or a month or uh, three months or uh, six months or a year. And this is one of those situations, the Buddha was always talking about it, you know, of the importance of uncertainty, uh, that that really we don't know uh, what the next moment is going to bring. But uh, usually we can uh, we we can pretend because of probability we can infer what's going to happen. With, with this we really can't. So um, uh, people are certainly imposing uh, stories about what might happen, but uh, uh, I think it's pretty clear even when we're doing that that we don't know. And how are you counseling people about dealing with that uncertainty, or how are you even dealing with it yourself? Um, I don't think I'm counseling anybody about how to deal with the uncertainty. I, I think I'm just acknowledging uh, mm. the uncertainty that we're all feeling. And um, I, uh, for myself, I feel like, oh, all those retreats that I've been on, they really help because um, this way of living is so much like being on retreat, you know, uh, like you can, you can sort of feel what the weather is going to be the next day, but, uh, but you don't know much more than that. Um, so, you know, being able to, to live reasonably, I mean, I feel very fortunate that I can live reasonably comfortably, you know, moment to moment and not be worrying about, uh, um, my immediate financial state or finding food or anything, you know, it, it's, um, I'm sure it's a lot, a lot scarier for a lot of people, but people just have to cope in the moment, you know? Absolutely. You write in the book, quote, the willingness to face traumas, be they large, small, primitive, or fresh is the key to healing from them. Right speech, in my interpretation, asks us to pay attention to how we talk to ourselves about this inevitable aspect of life, how we exaggerate its implications. So often within the privacy of our inner worlds, we take the difficult thing and make it worse. Our own subliminal hate speech coats our experience and gives an added layer of meaning to the things that are already difficult enough. Right speech says this is unnecessary, end quote. Could you talk a little bit about right speech and particularly in terms of when our internal dialogues drift into self-criticism, which it's something that I'm feeling happening a lot right now. Uh, you're feeling it happening for you? I'm feeling it happening for me. I'm also seeing it a lot in my community um, because of my particular kind of past and areas of interest. I talk to people a lot about productivity and a lot about creativity and what I'm finding is that a lot of folks are kind of, you know, looking at this moment, as you say, as a kind of retreat, but are then expecting themselves to, you know, really be able to sort of be productive during this time or to, you know, take some creative project that was on the back burner and like really 
get it going. And it seems really, um, you know, demanding of oneself to expect that you would be able to sort of adapt and even perform in this like very optimized, you know, kind of way in this moment. I, I think that's really true. I don't think anybody has been able to be creative or productive uh, in these first couple of weeks. Even, you know, and I could certainly see um, uh, people thinking that they were going to be and um, being, being critical of themselves if they're not. But, uh, but just speaking from my own immediate experience, my wife and I uh, here um, in our house... Uh, there's been so much uh, ex- external stuff to deal with, even while we're doing nothing. Um, that you know, in terms of reorienting uh, around uh, uh, what the virus is doing in the world, uh, in everybody's world, that um, I think it's been impossible to do much more than m- make the meals, find the food, make the meals, go for a walk you know, watch a little television, uh, et cetera. I think it's d- definitely not yet a creative time. Um, in, the, uh, in terms of right speech, um, which is how you began your question, uh, you know, as I said, I tried to frame that Advice Not Given book around the Buddha's Eightfold Path, and right speech is one of the eight limbs of the Eightfold Path, and it's usually talked about as, uh, uh, you know, right speech, like you're not supposed to gossip and you're not supposed to say nasty things and you're supposed to keep your temper under control and so on. Um, but uh, I was more interested in uh, what right speech might mean if you think about it in terms of the way we talk to ourselves. Um, and certainly as a therapist, I'm always interested in how people are talking to themselves and uh, there's a lot of self-criticism and a lot of shame uh, that gets perpetuated by uh, our thoughts. And a lot of those thoughts are, as I think I was trying to say in that passage that you read, are subliminal, uh, such that they're happening and we're thinking them, uh, but we don't necessarily know that they're happening and that we're thinking them. So in a way, we're sort of hypnotizing ourselves with our own thoughts uh, and then carrying around a feeling of unworthiness or inadequacy or there's something basically wrong with us. But we're reinforcing that feeling all the time with these, uh, this kind of uh, 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 negativity. Uh, and and uh, a lot of what meditation or therapy is good for is bringing those uh, kind of hidden thoughts and the relentless nature of those kind of hidden thoughts uh, more into the light so that we have a little more choice about what, we, what we're thinking or if not about what we're thinking, then what we're believing. Um, so uh, I think this is a very nice, very good time to see a lot of that because of what you're saying, that uh, uh, all these, um, uh, you know, type A uh, uh, kind of uh, people who need to be productive all the time to feed their ego, egoic sense of themselves uh, when they find themselves in a crisis like this is actually, and that they can't work in the way that uh, they're used to working and they can't be productive in the way they're used to being productive. 
that uh, that becomes a kind of crisis of identity. And uh, that can be productive, that crisis of identity, in terms of releasing uh, ourselves from uh, who we think we're, we're supposed to be. Yeah, I was going to ask you if there's sort of a, an opportunity in that crisis of identity. Could you say a little bit more about that? Well, there's always an opportunity. Uh, uh, there's always an opportunity to free oneself from uh, uh, one's, uh, one's uh, thoughts of who one is supposed to be. Uh, so this is as good a time as any and maybe a, maybe a better time than most, uh, precisely because and I found this myself, um, I, I, I found it very difficult to leave not just my home uh, in the city, but my office in the city. Uh, I've been working out of the same office, uh, which is just the ba- a basement office in the building that we live in, but it's my basement and my office. Uh, I've been working out of it for you know 35 years or so. Um, and uh, so much of my therapy practice is based there and so much of my day is spent there and my patients come to see me there. So um, when I had to leave it abruptly and I went back once uh, a, a week ago, a little 10 days ago to you know clean it out and get the papers that I needed and so on, I felt really stripped of my... Uh, a big part of my identity, um, and uh, and I missed it, it you know. And I and uh, I had never bothered to really uh, tune into how much of my identity was coalesced around the uh, the space uh, and the place, you know. Uh, and I wasn't sure that my patients, who usually come and sit with me there, would be at all uh, interested even in just talking on the phone, you know, in some dislocated way during this, during this time. But um, I've been uh, uh, happy to, to find that many of them have wanted to, at least for the moment, to continue. Mm, yeah, so there's very much this aspect of being stripped of your identity and even being stripped of your office and sort of stripped of your routines and your environment. And it seems like, too, when we're talking about this kind of, you know, productivity piece of it, there's also something there about right effort, right, which is sort of about kind of not giving up, but also not pushing too hard, right, finding that balance. And in the book, you use this metaphor of being familiar with one's instrument and really tuning into what you're able and not able to do in a really honest way. And I'm curious about how you kind of think about that in this particular moment and and how you think we can kind of tune into, you know, what is the right amount of effort to ask of oneself? Well, the, the instrument is, is one's mind. Um, The, the Buddha, when he talked about right effort, the classic, conversation that he had about it, which, uh, which I quoted in the book, was with a musician, a, a, a lute player, um, who was trying to get a handle on what right effort would mean for him. And the, the Buddha said something like, you know, if, if your instrument is tuned too laxly, you know, then what kind of sound does it make? And uh, I think I think the musician's name was Sona, uh, and he said, "Oh, it, you know, makes a lousy sound." 
And he said, if and if it's tuned, if the strings are tuned too tightly, strung too tightly, does it make a beautiful sound? And Sona said, no, it makes a, you know, sort of grating sound. And the the Buddha said, just so, just so we, you you need to tune your mind, you know, not not too lax, not too tight. Um, and that's a, that's very useful instruction for meditation, because. Um, half the people in the world try too hard when they're meditating and they strain uh, too much and they get, they get frustrated, you know, if you're trying to focus the mind on the breath and you, uh, you try too hard to find the breath, uh, then, the, uh, then you feel like, oh, what a terrible meditator you are because it's so difficult to find the breath or you're squeezing too tight around it. Um, the other half of the people in the world don't try hard enough and they, they sit or they lean, uh, you know, they slump, uh, and they fall asleep and, uh, they, they just let their mind wander. They don't really try to, uh, follow what's happening moment to moment. They kind of let it, let it pass. Um, so finding that middle way, which was always the Buddha's uh, instruction, finding that middle way is challenging. You know, we're always uh, sliding off in one direction or off in the other direction. Um, For this moment, you know, this is such a strange moment. Uh, what, What does right effort mean? Are there any particular ways of understanding it? Uh, there probably are, um, uh, but I think it has to do a lot with keeping one's mind in a in an optimistic place, uh, but also taking the threat seriously, n- not just for oneself, because. You know, if you're a young, youngish, healthy person, uh, you probably can get the virus and survive it. You know, you have a week of some kind of symptoms and be fine. But um, the point of all this quarantine is to protect uh, other more vulnerable people, because if we're all not careful with ourselves, we end up becoming instruments of of uh, pain and disease and uh, potentially death for somebody else. So that's a that's a sobering kind of realization. Not that it's not always true about what kind of impact one's own uh, behavior has on the world, but now we're being forced to look at it, you know, up close and personal. Um, so that actually could be interesting for people. We have to pause for a moment to thank our sponsors, but stay with me. After the jump, Mark and I talk about meditation as an act of re-embodiment and how to move into a lighter awareness of the self. This episode is brought to you by Hover. The other day, an artist I follow was talking about how people who have labor-intensive projects to work on have a secret elixir for joy. And it's true. Making stuff makes us feel better. And in my opinion, 
This strange, uncertain, improvisational moment is a weirdly good time to make stuff, at the very least as an act of self-soothing. I myself have set up not one, but three new websites since all this madness started unfolding, and all of them with domains that I purchased via Hover. When you're ready to launch your latest online project into the world, Hover makes finding and maintaining your new domain name completely seamless. First of all, Hover offers over 400 top-level domain name extensions to choose from, including all the classics like your .orgs and .coms, plus newer favorites like .art, one that really stands out for online makers who are keen to showcase their work. What's more, Hover doesn't constantly try to upsell you. Whois privacy is included with every domain, and features like Hover Connect make it super easy to connect your domain to a variety of popular website builders with just a few clicks. And if you have a bunch of websites like me, the more domains you register with Hover, the less you pay in renewals. So if you've got an idea you're passionate about, start laying the groundwork now by heading over to hover.com slash hurry slowly to get 10% off your first purchase. That's H-O-V-E-R dot com slash hurry slowly. When you were talking about how right effort plays out um, in a meditation practice, and I want to talk a little bit more about meditation, you write in the book, quote, we live primarily in a disembodied mental universe. As in touch as we might want to be with others, we are very practiced at being in a slight remove from ourselves. Meditation begins by asking us to rest our minds in our bodies as we rest our bodies on a cushion or a comfortable chair, end quote. It's so simple, but I really love this image so much of the mind resting in the body like it's taking a load off. Um, could you talk about disembodiment and the release or, or maybe even the restfulness of coming back into the body? Well, I think I was talking primarily about myself in that, uh, uh, in that portion that you're reading, but uh, uh, however I chose to uh, universalize it. Um, the uh, uh, resting the mind in the body as the body rests uh, on the chair or on the cushion. Uh, I must have heard that uh, maybe from Sharon Salzberg uh, giving meditation instruction. She's an old friend uh, who's a well-known Vipassana mindfulness teacher. And uh, over the years, I've often taught uh, with her and with Professor Robert Thurman, who's a scholar of Tibetan Buddhism, runs Tibet House uh, in New York City. And the three of us uh, often teach together because we have you know, very different perspectives. But I think that was from Sharon, uh, who's, a, who's an excellent uh, meditation teacher. And th that idea of, um, uh, of uh, connecting uh, to the body, of, of remembering to uh, allow the mind to not exist independently, uh, you know, in a kind of disembodied state, uh, but to uh, keep trying to find the, uh, uh, the vehicle uh, in which our uh, incarnation is uh, taking place, you know, is embodied. Uh, that's been very helpful for me. Um, and 
useful as a uh, as a reminder in meditation. Uh, you know, the word, um, uh, the Pali or Sanskrit word for mindfulness is sati. It's spelled S-A-T-I. And the, uh, the literal translation of sati is not mindfulness. Mindfulness is some weird 19th century English word that got applied to it by translators. But the, uh, the actual meaning of the word sati is, is remembering, um, which has always mm. struck me as weird. Uh, like why, why is mindfulness remembering? You know, is it remembering to come back to the moment? Uh, maybe. But the, the word remembering uh, also has this uh, sense in it of connecting to the body, you know, connecting to that, uh, uh, um, whatever aspects of ourselves we have uh, uh, distanced ourselves from uh, through a, uh, you know, a defense mechanism or just through a forgetting. Um, so this idea also of re-embodying oneself, uh, I think, is intrinsic to the word itself or to the practice itself. I didn't know that about Sati. That's really beautiful. Um, I'm a relatively new meditator, and I've been meditating almost every day since I moved upstate, um, mm -hmm. which was last October. And it's it's quickly become a pretty essential practice for me for coping and for self-awareness and for coming back into my body as we were just talking about. And I really can't imagine going through this crisis without it at this point. And I have no doubt that there are a lot of folks listening who are having the feeling that they might need some new tools or practices to rely on in this moment. But it also strikes me as a moment that could be in a way, like a bit fraught for starting a meditation practice in that we all need grounding so badly right now that I feel like it could lead you to expect too much from the practice or to be too hard on yourself in the practice. And so I'm curious kind of what your advice would be to someone who is just finding themselves in this moment and, you know, really needs some grounding and, and wants to take up meditation, kind of how to take that on in this very unusual moment. Sure. Well, after having written a book called Advice Not Given, it's, uh, it's nice to be asked to, uh, to give some advice about this. Um, I always joke that when I go on those silent uh, week-long or two-week-long or month-long, whatever they are, meditation retreats, where one is supposed to be meditating all the time, that, uh, that there's, there's no time to meditate at those places because uh, there's so much other stuff to do. You know, you have to get up, you have to go to the dining hall for uh, two or three meals per day. You have a little job that you have to do there of cleaning or washing the dishes or vacuuming or sweeping or something. You have to take a walk or I have to take a walk. Otherwise, I'm just, you know, doing nothing with my body. I have to stretch a little bit. And so uh, uh, just doing all of that stuff, there's like about an hour that's left in the morning and an hour in the afternoon to meditate. Um, but the point of secluding oneself away at a retreat like that is that meditation doesn't have to happen just in a sitting posture. It doesn't have to happen just in a chair or on a cushion. That the idea behind meditation is to uh, try to be as aware as possible 
of whatever it is that's happening in the moment and to try as much as possible to do just one thing at a time so that when I'm eating uh, on the retreat in the dining hall, each spoonful, each forkful is a meditation. You know, the, the instructions for mindful eating are to chew each bite completely, you know, tasting, tasting, tasting the flavor as it rises and as it falls away and not reaching for the next bite before you've finished completely the last one. So even a, like, you know, uh, um, not very hefty vegetarian meal takes about half an hour to eat mindfully, you know, maybe 40 minutes. Then you have to drink the tea, you know, sip by sip. So, and then there's walking from place to place, you know, uh, mindfully paying uh, exclusive attention as much as possible just to the sensations of the limbs moving when one's walking and noticing how the mind is trying to think about something else instead of just staying with the walking. All of that becomes the meditation. So uh, the point of all that is that in this time, when people are uh, much more secluded than they're used to, when they're quarantined, when they're in the home, uh, when they don't quite know what to do with themselves, there's a, a real opportunity to bring this quality of mindful awareness to the particulars of one's uh, day-to-day life, brushing your teeth, shaving, um, making the coffee, eating breakfast. If you're home with uh, young children, you know, not trying to do the email or check the phone when you're playing with the children, you, you know, like being, being, if you're with a partner, being with your partner at those times that you choose to be together without trying to do something else, you know, at the same time. There's a real opportunity. Uh, forget the sitting meditation uh, possibility, but there's a real opportunity to be much more alive and awake and aware uh, in one's day-to-day life, you know, going to the window, going to the door, looking outside, going for a walk, feeling the spring that, that will come someday, feeling the rain or the mist or the fog, looking at the birds, l- listening to the relative quiet without all the traffic, you know, or listening to the sirens in the city that are the main sounds that are puncturing everybody's, uh, um, everybody's listening. Um, all of that it be- becomes part of what we could call meditation. For people who are interested in actually beginning a sitting meditation practice, I think there's lots of good instruction to be had in podcasts and on the web and so on. So there are a lot of guided meditations. Uh, I know Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein, Jack Cornfield, people who have been very important to me. Uh, Dan Harris at his 10% Happier uh, website and podcast has wonderful instruction. I think there's the thousands of ways of, of learning to meditate. But um, to try to stay really simple with it, you know, just sit 
for five minutes or 10 minutes and let your mind open, let yourself just listen to the sounds that are surrounding you. It, you know, let yourself settle into your body and be, let your mind be held by the body as the body is held by the chair. Try to do as little as possible when you're sitting and just watch, watch your mind, feel your body, listen to the sounds that are around you, that kind of thing. Yeah. And so there's really an opportunity here, as you say, to move into a deeper awareness and there's this passage I really love in your book where you write about how um, we had talked about the ego at uh, the very top of this interview. You write about how the Buddha had to deal with his ego after he reached enlightenment. And you write, quote, relaxing the ego's grip makes the experience of pure awareness possible. But the experience of pure awareness makes it clear what work still needs to be done on the ego. After the ecstasy, it is said, comes the laundry end quote. And this has definitely been my experience, which is not to say I'm enlightened, but that increased awareness seemed to at least initially really bring more pain, you know, in that I could see my shortcomings more clearly. And then of course, you know, felt like I wanted to address them. And I'm curious if you could talk more about this idea of sort of the laundry after the ecstasy. And I mean, in particular, I'm asking about this because I think one of the fears, the reason that so many of us keep so busy and the reason that we're trying to be productive, even in retreat, is that there's, you know, a kind of fear of moving into deeper self-awareness and what that's going to bring up. Uh, well, I wouldn't, I, I don't really think of it as a deeper awareness, the, the awareness that comes uh, that's revealed through meditation. And in a way, it's, um, it's a lighter awareness. Mm. Um, or it's something that, that is all, it's there all the time. You, you know, it's not, it's not really that we have to uh, um, uh, dig inside of ourselves for something. You, you know, it's there all the time. We just usually don't see it because we're so preoccupied with the day-to-day. -day. We're so preoccupied with our everyday thoughts, with our ambitions, with our feelings of shame or unworthiness, uh, with our need to be productive, that we, we forget, you know, to smell the flowers or see the, uh, the young children or just feel the pleasures that are available to us even now. Um, so um, the... After the Ecstasy, the Laundry, that's a, um, a title of a book that my friend and teacher Jack Cornfield wrote many years ago, um, and I appropriated that from him. Um, the, the, uh, the idea is that um, even if you touch that awareness that is always present, and uh, if you get yourself out of the way enough, uh, even for a moment, you can touch it and it feels revelatory. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you've cleaned up uh, all the stuff in yourself that needs to be looked at. Um, so uh, there's a kind of humility that comes when... Uh, when you reach outside of yourself and uh, and realize, oh, maybe I don't have to be that person that I'm trying to be. Maybe I don't have to be that person that I thought I was. 
but that doesn't necessarily uh, relieve you of all the pressures to be that very person. So <laughs> it get, it gives you some motivation, you, you know, as you were saying before, to uh, take a look at what's really there and. Um, Okay, now it's now it's your responsibility to try to deal with it. Uh, the uh, the story from the Buddha's life is that uh, even after his enlightenment, which was a profound awakening, you know, like nothing that that we're ever going to find in this lifetime. But uh, even after all of that, uh, his ego, in the form of there's a character in the uh, in the, in the story of the Buddha's life and enlightenment, there's a character called Mara, who is usually talked about as the devil, uh, but uh, he really was a kind of a, a lord of a desire realm uh, who uh, steps in to represent the Buddha's ego. And um, he's, before his enlightenment, Mara is uh, uh, torturing him, uh, with his armies and then sending his beautiful daughters to tempt him. Uh, and he fights through all of Mara's obscurations, you know, and wins his, uh, his enlightenment. But after enlightenment, Mara is still there whispering in the Buddha's ear, telling him, like, why are you wasting your time, you know, trying to convince these people of this thing that they can't understand? Why don't you just take your place as uh, you could be a great king, a great prince, a great ruler, you could be a great guru, you know, like just uh, you could have your own temples, you could have your own movement. Um, why don't you leave all this renunciation stuff alone? Um, and uh, the Buddha, every time Mara peeks in, the Buddha says, I see you, Mara. You know, I see you and I don't have to listen to what you have to say. So that, that's sort of the attitude uh, that I was getting at in the book about the ego. You know, the ego doesn't necessarily lie down and go away, but uh, we get more empowered to be able to just see, uh, it, you know, the, uh, uh, the intense uh, need that we have for the ego and that the ego has for us and to learn to loosen that, uh, that grip a little bit. Well, and as you say, this is a, a, a fine moment to think about loosening that grip a little bit. Um, a teacher of mine who I was talking to the other day was telling me about a friend of hers who she lovingly calls the little Buddha because she's always trying to seem maybe a little bit more spiritually evolved <laughs> than she is. And I think that impulse kind of comes up in this moment. I can even feel it in myself sometimes to kind of put on a brave spiritual face, so to speak, and to kind of present yourself as someone who is like evolved enough to handle this crazy world situation. Mm -hmm. And I think it's certainly good to try and proceed with as much grace and kindness as we all can. But I'm curious, what do you think is lost when we try to say, you know, kind of rise above or, or suppress in some way the, the, inherent grief and pain that's part of this situation? Well, I think one's humanity is lost, you know, uh, and um, uh, one's, uh, one's empathy, um, uh, both for uh, uh, the traumas or troubles uh, that we face individually, but also as a community, as a culture. Um, there's so much... Uh, so much uh, pain 
and difficulty uh, and grief and uh, anxiety uh, happening um, even as we speak that if uh, if we're just uh, only focused on uh, uh, how well we're handling it um, then uh, what use is that you know for the world mm, absolutely I have one more question about meditation. You talk in the book about how some people use meditation to resist change or even to escape from themselves um, as opposed to kind of moving into a deeper or we'll say lighter awareness. Could you say a little bit more about that? Well, I think that's very common. I mean, people use people use whatever is available to them to in a defensive way, you know, to avoid... Uh, dealing with the, the more troubling aspects of themselves or their situation. So uh, meditation is no different than uh, uh, heroin or alcohol or television or uh, uh, food. Um, you know, it's, an, it's, another, it's another instrument uh, that uh, can be used uh, for self-protection or for self-exposure. Um, so uh, uh, that's been true, you know, since the Buddhist time, uh, since before the Buddhist time, there were, uh, you, you know, many, many, many schools of yoga and meditation in the ancient world where people train themselves ha- basically how to uh, go into a hypnotic state uh, or a transcendental state in which the... Um, uh, not just the body, but the uh, the troubles of the entire world were left behind, and uh, people could, uh, the, you know, those meditative uh, uh, experts could uh, basically launch themselves into the psychic equ- equivalent of a heaven realm, and uh, you know, hang out there uh, with very little need to uh, uh, participate in the world, but. Um, uh, one of the Buddha's great psychological contributions was to point out that uh, even those most sublime states were temporary. Um, you know, they could go on for a long time, but they were temporary. And when the uh, individual emerged from those states, they were still uh, just as subject to uh, uh, pain, illness, grief, sadness, uh, disappointment, uh, uh, anger, uh, conceit, uh, as they were before they entered into those states. They, they don't really do anything uh, to uh, help uh, develop or transform the personality. So the, the Buddha came at meditation from a totally different direction. Mm. I want to ask you one last question, which may or may not make sense. I think it does, but you can let me know. Um, you write a bit about the British child analyst Donald Winnicott in Advice Not Given, and Winnicott coined the term holding environment. And I'm curious if you could explain the origins of that term for listeners and how some elements of that concept might be relevant to the kind of safety or comfort that we're all craving right now. Well, I, I talk about the British child analyst, uh, Donald Winnicott, a lot. He's one of the, my great uh, influences. Um, 
uh, he wasn't Buddhist, but he was a psychoanalyst, and he uh, um, uh, dealt primarily with children and their parents. Um, just before the this whole coronavirus uh, thing happened, uh, I ran into uh, a young couple. Uh, they're both artists who had been at a uh, workshop that uh, uh, Robert Thurman and I gave over the summer. I ran into them at uh, an opening at the Metropolitan Museum of an artist named Gerhard Richter, uh, a show that's now been closed uh, because of the virus. But they came up to me and they and they said, you know, when uh, we heard you talking about the British child analyst, uh, Donald Winnicott, over the summer, uh, we both thought that, wow, there was such a precocious, uh, such a precocious child. Uh, um, came up with all those great ideas that you were talking about, because instead of uh, hearing instead of hearing it as a psychoanalyst of children, they heard it as that uh, he was a child analyst. Um, <laughs> so I promised them that I would always remember that uh, that misunderstanding. Um, what was great about Winnicott was that um, he really understood that even the youngest of children, even down to infancy, that there's emotional life happening in young children, but that their minds are not developed enough to understand what's going on emotionally inside of them, that, uh, that they need the, uh, the feedback, or in Winnicott's words, the holding of the mother or the father or the caretaker uh, they need not just the holding, but the feedback, uh, the interpretation that the parents are able to give so that when a child is hungry or when a child is tired or when a child needs to be changed and is frustrated or irritated, um, if they're left alone too long, that becomes a crisis. Uh, but if the parent is there to pick them up and respond and uh, talk to them, murmur to them, uh, sing to them, and in a slight way, make fun of them, you know, like, oh, poor you, you're, you must be hungry. Why don't you try this? Um, the child learns that emotional experience be, is actually tolerable. And this concept that we have as therapists of frustration tolerance comes out of this, that children who uh, aren't handled properly, Winnicott talked about the good enough mother or the good enough parent. You know, not that parents don't fail, but uh, but they don't fail forever. You know, they catch themselves and uh, and uh, come through, and that a child learns through the parents coming through that their own emotional experiences uh, n not only can be handled, but they can be named and held and eventually understood. Um, so uh, my, uh, the help that I got from Winnicott was in understanding that meditation in its own way, just as therapy in its own way, creates an environment in which that kind of holding, in the larger sense of the word holding, not just physical holding, but also mental, creating the mental space that can hold and tolerate even the most difficult emotional experiences, that we're recreating that kind of thing for ourselves in meditation, just as we're recreating that kind of thing for ourselves in a good psychotherapy, where we learn that we don't have to be so scared of the things we're scared of, 
that in a good enough relationship, uh, even the most traumatic of experiences can be um, metabolized uh, and understood. For me at least, Mark's final words on Donald Winnicott and the good enough relationship made me think of the incredible importance of having a good enough relationship with yourself during this moment of uncertainty. Are you able to hold space for yourself to process the fear and grief that inevitably arise in crises like these? Are you able to speak gently, fold your hands over your heart, and soothe yourself when the anxiety gets to be too much? Can you set aside your expectations for everything that you had thought was going to happen this spring and instead be present to what actually is happening? And maybe even, as Mark suggested, see the opportunity for self-reflection? It's a big ask, especially when so many of us are struggling emotionally or financially or perhaps even dealing with sickness or loss. But it does seem to be what's being offered a chance to look deep within and see what we're really made of, what we really value, and what really matters. As I mentioned at the top of the show, I have a new course called Hi-Fi in the works. It's a 12-week community-driven course that invites you to reconnect with your body, open your heart, and bring your intuition online. To learn more, visit hi-fi-course.com. That's H-I-F-I-Course.com. As always, thanks to Matt Susich for producing this episode and to Devin Craig Johnson for additional audio magic. If this episode sparked some new ideas for you, I would love it if you left us a review on iTunes. There's a link to the reviews page right down there in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and remember to take your time. Thank you.